The scripture this morning is found in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. God, that we might truly see what you have promised for the people of God, for those with your name. For you have promised life, and that abundantly, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Abundantly free from the curse and its effect on our lives, the broken relationships, the subtle but nagging discontent, the continuous pursuit of that which does not satisfy, the restlessness, the loss, the regrets, the pain, the sorrow. But you have promised life, which comes only from you, from your throne. Life in your presence, forever and ever, you are our hope. Amen. Praise the Lord. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. I have personally benefited greatly from the study of the storyline of the Bible. And this morning we will look at the story's epilogue. It's as if we are able to read the last word of the story concerning the story itself and how we as his people fit into the story of God and how God is going to wrap all this up. Mark read from Revelation 22, 1 through 5. It's a constant theme in the book of Revelation that God does in the end, is winning and does in the end manifest that victory openly and unashamedly. The storyline of the Bible as we have considered it will come full circle. It will end where it began with God. I would like us just to review by some quick thoughts the big picture that we have considered. We've looked at the subject of the story. It is about the person and purpose of God. No matter where we read in the story, from Genesis through Revelation and in all of creation and all of life, it is about the person and purpose of God. From the very beginning, we have seen the appearance of a villain. There is this enemy, this antagonist, who is out to destroy us. But from the very beginning of the story, even with the appearance of the villain, you have the foretelling of a hero. There is one coming who will deliver us from our shame, our fear, and our guilt. He is foretold in prophecy and in figure, in picture, in type, in shadow. And then he arrives. We see that in the Gospels. The hero arrives And we see the hero's work. He came to redeem his people from their shame, from their fear, from their guilt. He leaves with us a legacy. Something that you and I are a part of. The book of Acts tells us 
how this plays out from about 30 A.D. to 65 A.D. But we are a part of that continuing outworking of God's victory, God's work, God's legacy. And now we are going to end with the story's epilogue, the last word as it were. I mentioned recently a book that Pastor Caleb recommended called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now it's really for children. It's for parents to read their children stories about the Bible. However, if you are new to Christianity, I would buy this book and I would read it. I just secured it this week and we were watching Solomon, uh, our grandson, Friday night and I read him probably six or seven stories. So it's something and he's going to be three. It's something that he enjoyed, but I enjoyed it immensely. It says the Jesus Storybook Bible and then the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. But we have been looking at the storyline of the Bible and I just want you to hear it from someone else besides myself. So let us pretend that you're three years old and this is Gampa Pat. Here's the forefront of this book. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible does certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. We've heard this before, haven't we? And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. I would purchase this thing if I were a parent, even if I weren't a parent because I'm a lover of books, I would buy this thing. But this is what we're talking about when we talk about the Bible. It's a story. And now we're looking at the end of the story. The value of knowing the end of the story is to fill his people with hope. God wants us right now to be living in light of his victory. God wants us right now in the present, today, to understand where all this is headed. Because we know how the story will end, we can persevere. 
all that He promised will come to pass. Everything that God has promised will come to pass. One day, we will live in the hero's immediate, tangible, concrete presence. It will be a day of unbridled joy. Our problem is that we do not live in light of the end. We get distracted. We get consumed by all things immediate. And we don't live in light of the end. We allow ourselves to believe that the villain is winning and that our hero is not currently working in our behalf. We must remember that the hero has won and we are living in his victory. I have the opportunity on occasion to rotate into the third through sixth grade Sunday school. And I do what I do here. I go in there and I start talking. And I was reviewing the story and I was trying to tell the kids that the Bible is a story. It's not just a story that is in Genesis through Revelation. It's a story that encompasses all of life. But I said sometimes when you're in a story, and and we have a ton of readers in our third through sixth grade Sunday school class, but sometimes when you're in a story, you're reading a part that simply doesn't make sense. Have you been there in a long story? I mentioned how I read Shogun by James Clavell or The Lord of the Rings. And there's all this movement taking place. And sometimes you have no idea how the various pieces fit together. And I asked the kids, what should you do when you find yourself in a part of the story that makes no sense? And one of the little kids yelled out, keep reading! Keep reading! Right now, where you are in your life, you might be scratching your head thinking, what in the world is going on? I simply don't understand. It isn't supposed to look like this. Friends, keep reading. Keep reading. And that's what we want to do this morning. We want to keep reading the story. But where do we go from here? Because the story exceeds the boundaries placed on it, it engulfs everyone and everything that lies in its path. It's not simply a story that is told from Genesis through Revelation. It is a story that exceeds the boundaries of the Scripture. It is in His story. It is in where we are right now. We are a part of that story. God wrote into the story every detail. He knows what will happen before it happens simply because He is God. There is only one book that gives us the rest of the story. It is found almost exclusively in the book of Revelation. And that's why we have had two passages already read this morning from the book of Revelation. But what the book of Revelation does is tell us the rest of the story. The book of Revelation is notably apocalyptic literature. And you might ask yourself, self, why is he using such big words? such as apocalyptic. It's not a word that we commonly use in everyday vocabulary. Apocalyptic literature is literature that speaks of the future to encourage the present by means of symbolism. It uses symbolism to communicate its thoughts. The meaning is not in the symbol, but in what the symbol represents. That is crucial for us as we look at the book of Revelation. Because sometimes we stop with the symbolism and we don't think what is beyond the symbolism. But the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature and it uses symbolism 
to communicate to its immediate audience hope and encouragement. It is a literature that is born out of crisis and was a means of addressing that crisis to a religious community. This means the intent of the literature was to explain present conflict and provide immediate hope. Why are we still contending with evil? And what hope do we have in light of this evil? There is very little sign of the kingdom of God on earth during their persecution. They are experiencing this hardship and they're asking God why and where are you? But whatever it may feel like, God is in control. We say that, don't we? We affirm that truth. Who's in control? God's in control. Sometimes it just doesn't look like it. But God is in control. There is a throne in heaven and it is not empty. The book of Revelation is remarkably singular in its purpose. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 read as follows. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. When you and I read the book of Revelation, There is a singular idea inside of the book. And all of it is from, through, and for God. All of it is from, through, and for Jesus Christ. So whatever we read in the book of Revelation, it is somehow about the hero. And we are to take courage from this book. This singular idea concerning the person of Christ cannot be abandoned when seeking to understand what the book contains. Everything about the story is from God. It is through God. It is for God. Sometimes we read the book of Revelation and we scratch our heads and we begin to ponder the symbolism. But what is the purpose of the symbolism? It is all about God. The centerpiece to the story is the person and work of Jesus Christ as he works to save his people from their shame, from their fear, from their guilt. This is not something we can do in and of ourselves. God has to do it and God has done it. The book of Revelation provides a last word that enables the reader to see how the story will end. Neither the beginning, middle, nor ending of the story are left to chance. God neither wonders nor questions how the story will end. Oh, that's great. Nor do we have to wonder or question how the story will end. God tells us the story's epilogue. He tells us where all this is heading. The revelation is not simply speaking of something that is still hundreds of thousands of years in the future. The revelation, as we have read, speaks of something that is near It speaks of a story that is not far off. When the author, and I love how C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, he says, when the author walks on the stage, the play is over. Revelation has the author walking on the stage, and the play is over. 
It is this last word that explains our present conflict and provides for us an immediate hope. There are three primary ideas that I wish us to consider this morning as I try to tell the end of the story. The first is this, the villain's absence. There is coming a time when the villain of the story will be removed from our presence. We can talk about being saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, but one day you and I, as his people, will be saved from the presence of sin. The book of Revelation tells us that the villain will be one day absent from all this. Secondly, we will note the hero's presence. One day there will be this very concrete, tangible, physical, immediate presence of Jesus Christ. We will enjoy his presence just as we enjoy one another's presence. And then finally, we will note from the book of Revelation, the believer's joy. We will have joy unspeakable and full of glory. All that is what awaits us. But let's begin by noting Revelation 19, and we'll look at the villain's absence. In Revelation 19 and 20, we have this treatment of the villain. And we will see his absence from the end of the story. God's judgment against human autonomy and supernatural anarchy is inclusive and conclusive. There are four things that we see in chapters 19 and 20. We see that the economy of the Antichrist is destroyed. That which he has set up inside this world system will be destroyed. We will see that the military of the Antichrist is destroyed. It is impossible, by the way, for me to look at Revelation 19 and 20 in its entirety. But I'm trying to summarize for us what is stated. And here we begin to see the complete and utter absence of the villain's presence. We see the economy of the Antichrist, the villain, is destroyed. The military of the Antichrist is destroyed. We see that the authority of the Antichrist is destroyed. And we will see that the sentence against the Antichrist is completed. Let us simply read two extended passages from these two chapters. The first is found in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Again, capture with me the sense of what's being said. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems and crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed. Who is being described? The story's hero. This is the story's hero. He's showing up. And he is flexing. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the hero of heroes. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, 
assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Turn then to Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. What we see is the hero's arrival and the complete demise of the villain's presence. All the strength that the villain has is being destroyed. Then verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What we have here is the hero's arrival and the demise of the villain's authority and his army. Everything against him is now removed. There is coming a day when you and I will no longer have to contend with sin. That is how the story ends. The villain will be absent from the story. It is interesting to remember when you look at the New Testament how the last handful of biblical books to be written are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're written about 60 A.D. And then you have First and Second Timothy, written about 60 A.D., just before Paul the Apostle dies in 64 A.D. And then between those books and the last book, the book of Revelation, you have 90, you have 90 A.D. or 30 years. Now think about that. Between 60 A.D. and 90 A.D., you have 30 years, and we have no biblical revelation being given. The Bible gives us, as it were, the highlights. The Bible gives us the highlights. This is what we have to encourage us in our circumstances. As we live in the story, God tells us what the end looks like. And this is what the end looks like. God has won. God is winning. God will win. At the end of the story, the villain is removed. The story will carry on with the continued expansion of his kingdom on earth until such a time, an exact and predetermined time from Acts chapter 1, when the Father will send his Son once more to fully establish his kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 10. At such a time, there will be a revisiting of Edenic conditions. The villain will finally and fully be assigned his residency in a place where God's goodness will no longer be felt. Think about that. 
Sometimes when we go about describing hell, we look at the Bible and we think a place of perpetual torment. But hell is the absence of all that is God. I remember as a young child, I hated the dentist. And I thought that hell would be sitting in a dentist's chair having my teeth drilled forever. What is hell? Hell is the absence of all that is God. This is what hell will be. No matter what imagery we use to depict hell, hell is the absence of God. And that is where the villain and his armies end up. So the end of the story, God wins. The villain is completely absent from the end of the story. The second thing we note that God wants to tell us is the hero's presence. The hero is present. Look at Revelation 21. What is interesting as well is that you have this this constant mixture of light and shade, prosperity and adversity, mercy and judgment in the conduct of divine providence towards the church and the world. Now, at the very end of the story, at the close of it all, the day breaks and the shadows flee away. A new world now appears, the former having passed away. It's all gone. And now it is all good. That is what you and I are to be living in light of. The hero's presence. But notice chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. You have a new heaven, a new earth. You have the new Jerusalem present. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful. They are true. Then he said to me, It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes, those who believe, will inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We've already touched on that. And you and I can get lost in the shadow. We can get lost in the symbolism. But what's the big idea? The villain is absent. The hero is present. We have this new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And all of it is communicating a singular idea. God is present. What he has promised, he will perform. This is what awaits us. 21 verse 6 says, It is done. It is finished. The misery of the damned will illustrate the blessedness of those that are saved. And the blessedness of the saved will aggravate the misery of those that are damned. You and I as the people of God will enjoy the presence, the company of God forever. 
in that day he will dwell among us in a very concrete, physical, tangible way. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You know that stress you felt over the last couple of days? You know that burden you're bearing today? You know the pain that is constantly dragging you down and the temptation that never ceases to stop? All that will be gone. And in light of that, how do we now live? With endurance. There will no longer be any death. The other day, with the weather and the snow, you get that shut-in feeling, you know, like you're going nuts. Are you with me on that? Okay. So I thought, well, I'm going to cheer up my wife. Let's go see a movie. We saw Marley and Me. Now, I didn't realize, first, it's based on a book. Secondly, I didn't know that in the end the dog dies. We have two dogs. The hardest thing, yeah, do not see the movie, okay? I know I told you the end, okay? (laughs) But don't see the movie, especially if you're a dog lover. We have two dogs. We had to put one dog down. We had to put the dog down. That was by far one of the most painful things I've ever experienced emotionally. And you think, well, it's just the dog. Oh, we have one more dog. And after that, I said, I can't deal with it emotionally. I just cannot deal with it. Well, I go to Marley and me to enjoy the movie. I didn't know that in the end, the dog dies. We're all sobbing. I mean, Joanna's sobbing, Kirsten's sobbing. I covered my eyes when they're putting the dog down. I'm like, Lord, because my jaw just hurt from trying not to cry. You know, your whole head was just throbbing. And I covered my eyes and I'm like, I'm going to wait till the, the, the music changes and everybody's happy. I'm serious. It was just killing me. I walk out in the hallway and I go, if I'd known the dog would have died, you know, if anyone was going in there, I'd have ruined it for him. But had I known the dog was going to die, I wouldn't have picked that movie to cheer me up. And that was just the dog dying. And it killed me. But there's coming a day when there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That is our human experience, isn't it? He will make all things new. He will finish what he began. He will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Drink and eat to your fill. There will be no rebel or rebellion in the city. The hero's work, and then you you read this, the hero's work will prove lavish for those whom he calls his own. They will experience in unimaginable ways the fullness of his unveiled presence. I mean, it it blows our minds, folks. And we can't even process how explosive the language is in the scripture. We as his people will bask in the king's glory. All those things that created currently deem best. All those things that created currently deem best. We look at this and we, we, we hold this in value, the shadow. will pale in the presence of their creator, their deliverer, their hero, God's hero. All of the shadows will give way to the substance. No longer will the shadow even tempt those who live in fellowship with the king. Every residue of faith will give way to unhindered sight. Have you ever had moments of doubt? I mean, I've not wrestled with doubt for decades. 
But I've had my moments when I thought, hmm, <laughs> what if? All that stuff will be gone in that day. We won't have to have faith in that day. We will have unadulterated sight. In his presence is the fullness of joy. In his presence are pleasures forevermore. We will forever be at rest. Yesterday I chose not to go out. And I'm like a cooped up cat in the cage when I don't go out. I mean, it, it gets funny. Because I'm just pacing the floor. <laughs> you know, I'm like, hey, let's go out and shovel snow, you know. Move a snowbank, you know. I mean, I just can't handle it. I go study. I work on the computer. I do some reading. It's like, come on, I got to do something, you know. <laughs> I need to do something. I'm just, it's... <clears throat> but I will never experience that in heaven. I will never experience that in heaven. No sin in any way will taint the palatable presence of the king. You have the villain's absence. You have the hero's presence. And now you have the believer's joy. Revelation 21, 22 and following. The story ends where it will begin. And this is what I find so fascinating. It ends in the garden. We go back to what we once had. You have the hero's presence. In chapter 21, verses 22 through 27, his presence eliminates the need for the shadow. There's no temple. We don't need a shadow because he is there. His presence eliminates the need for the sun because he is there. His presence eliminates the need for security. You don't have to lock the gates anymore. You don't even have to close the door. We will be at complete peace and rest. There will no longer be any threat from any villain. It will be over. His presence eliminates the sinner. We will never have to contend with the unbelieving again. The garden of God, Mark read for us, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. I'll simply note that one statement. And if you read through it, it goes back to, it speaks of the river of life. It speaks of the tree of life. It speaks of, the lifting of the curse. Look at verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. <laughs> the story ends where it began, in a garden with God. And everything will be good. The curse is lifted. We will no longer have shame. We will no longer have fear. We will no longer have guilt. As his people. But we revert back to garden. In this context... We as his people will enjoy unhindered fellowship with God. Unhindered fellowship with God. This is our joy. As his people, we will enjoy unhindered fellowship with one another. All that craziness that exists inside of relationships will be gone. I will never be misunderstood or misunderstand again. Wow! I will have fellowship with God and with one another with no obstacle or restraint. His people will no longer have any occasion for shame, for fear, for guilt. We'll go back to that garden. As his people, we will never and can never be tempted again. <laughs> oh man, don't you get tired of the temptation? 
You have those seasons where you're just like, oh, for the love of whatever, <laughs> I am I'm exhausted with the fight. Never. In that day, never. How can a creature possibly capture in language or act the created? You read Revelation, and, and that's simply a whisper, folks. That's but the hem of his garment. That's just saying, hey, the best is still yet to come. But let us be encouraged knowing the end of the story. One day the villain will be absent. One day the hero will be present. Even though we understand and know the abiding Holy Spirit that exists in all of those who believe, one day we will have that very visible, concrete, tangible presence. And one day because of his presence, our joy will be mind-blowing. The New Testament ends where the Old Testament ended. Looking forward and waiting. Looking forward and waiting for the final fulfillment of the promises of God. He's coming. He's coming. Yet this is the story's end. There is coming a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a time when every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them will say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures will keep saying amen and the elders themselves will fall down and worship. The story will end where it began with God. God in all of His glory receiving the tribute worthy of His person and work. This is the storyline of the Bible. It has been and will forever be about Him. It will forever be about who He is, what He has done, and who His people are because of Him. Let us never lessen our pursuit of Him. Let us find all He is as being enough in this life and in the life which is to come. May we now and forevermore be determined to shout the supremacy of God in all things by finding, celebrating, declaring that He is enough. He is not simply necessary. He is enough for this life and the life which is to come through the systematic study of the Bible and then to share the message of Christ with every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Amen and amen. As we read the various parts of the story, we must ask, where are we in the Bible storyline? I would challenge you, I would encourage you, in light of hopefully this perhaps clear understanding of the Bible, as you read your Bible, read it as a story. Understand that a villain is present. Understand that the hero has arrived. Understand the nature of his work. The legacy has left us. But read it in light of the story. And so as you read the story, as you look at the various parts, ask yourself, where are we in the Bible storyline? Because God is the hero of the Bible from beginning to end and he never changes. We must equally ask, what does this passage tell me about him and my relationship to him? You and I are living in the story. What does that do for us now? I would like to end with a story that all of you are somewhat familiar with. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the hymn, the poem, Christmas Bells. And we're familiar with Christmas Bells. 
when I read it to you, you'll be familiar with some of the stanzas. What I don't think we have done is read the whole thing in, in its entirety. Because what Longfellow did was capture the story of Scripture, and what he did is showed himself and his experiences in light of the story. But Longfellow wrote Christmas Bells during the Civil War. Two years prior to the writing of the story, his wife had died in a fire. He had just received news that his son was grievously injured in battle. And here is what he wrote in the context of the Civil War. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old, familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And we're familiar with that stanza. And though how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. See that dark tone that now enters the story? It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. That is where we often find ourselves in the story. But now let us listen to the last stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead and doth not sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Victory is his. Keep going. The story is going to end where it began with God. Take courage. Take courage. May you and I likewise affirm our place in the story. May we see and live in light of God's hero. Let us pray. Our Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to look at this text. And God, my desire was to simply note once more how the story ends. God, I pray for those right now who are simply overwhelmed and even for myself and for all of us. We live with concerns. We live with strained relationships. We live with stress. We live with burdens. We live with chronic pain. We live with loneliness. We live with burdens. We live with fear and anxiousness, sometimes with shame and guilt. Oh God, may we live in light of the story. May we understand that even though our circumstances might appear to be dark even though our circumstances are dark, even though it appears as if no one is sitting on the throne, may we be drawn back to the story. May we understand that you are in control, that you care. I ask, O oh God, in the midst of our struggles today, that you would lift these burdens, that you would cause light to shine in the dark place, that people would find rest and peace, and that you would help us, Father, to see the all-sufficiency of Christ. I ask this for the sake of your great name. Amen.